Turn with me in God's Word to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Twenty-five years ago, I was halfway through my bachelor's degree at the University of uh, Toronto, as we say. Those of us who are from up there, you drop the second T and most of the O's, and you're left with Toronto. And I was halfway through that degree, and... Uh, Weathering a storm, I think that's uh, an appropriate way to describe it. Weathering a storm, a storm generated by three distinct yet somewhat related fronts. The first, moral relativism, the idea that you can do whatever you like. The second, philosophical pluralism, the idea that you can think whatever you like. And the third, Christian liberalism. The idea that we must accommodate Christianity to the spirit of the age, namely moral relativism and philosophical pluralism. I was weathering that storm. Uh, 21 years of age, having completed my second year at university, and my anchor through it all was Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. I had heard a sermon at some point during that year, and it had stuck with me. It had served me well. And this passage of Scripture, for me, became a go-to text and has been a go-to text ever since. You know what I mean by that expression, go-to text? We speak of a go-to guy, all right? Certain athletes, Michael Jordan, I guess, was a go-to guy, wasn't he? He wanted the ball in his hands as the seconds wound down in any game because he had a knack for knowing just what to do with that ball when the game hung in the balance. We use the expression in reference to friends, don't we? Um, we face difficult decisions. We go to that person. Uh, the pipe bursts. We go to that person. The computer crashes. We go to that person. We face some sort of family emergency, we go to that person, go-to guy, someone who is skilled in a certain area and someone in whom we trust, someone who has our full confidence. You get the idea. Well, this text for me became, 25 years ago, a go-to text, and it has been ever since. Why? Let me give you a sampling. It answers difficult questions. It explains current trends. It provides essential building blocks, and it challenges entrenched presuppositions. In a word, this text supplies the necessary pieces for the formulation of a Christian worldview. And for that reason, I want us to revisit it one more time. We've already plunged into it three times on three occasions. This will be a fourth occasion I promise it will be the last. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we move into chapter 2. But just because of how pivotal it is for the Christian and how important it is that we master it, dare I say memorize it because it will serve us so well, I think it's worth us dipping into it one more time. And so let me begin by giving you a, a very simple overview. I've given this to you before. Let me try to sum it up in four concise statements. If we grasp these statements then we have the essence of the text. Statement number one is as follows. Paul brings a charge. He does that in verse 18. 
where he writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the charge. That's the accusation that mankind has a problem. All people, all places, all times. They possess a serious problem, wrestle with a serious problem. It's simply this. Man suppresses the truth, and he does so in his unrighteousness. The second statement is this. Paul proves that man suppresses the truth. He does that in verse 19, verses 19, 20, and 21. And so look with me again at what he says in the 19th verse 4. In other words, I'm now going to demonstrate how man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. For or because what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. The knowledge of God is immediate because God is the revealer of himself. How has God revealed himself to all people in all places at all times? Paul tells us, verse 20, for his invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Therefore, they are without excuse. But how does man respond? Verse 21, although they knew God. For although they knew God, they knew his nature. They knew his nature from what is created. Although they know it to be true, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So statement number one, Paul brings the charge, verse 18. Statement number two, he proves that man suppresses the truth, verses 19 through 21. Statement number three, Paul demonstrates, he shows the result of man's suppression of the truth. It's twofold. One, man revels in his idolatry. And number two, God reveals his wrath. In a nutshell, we can state it as follows. Here's the result of man's suppression of truth. He becomes what he worships. He becomes what he worships. Paul demonstrates it in three ways. He shows us, firstly, yes, man becomes what he worships. It's seen in impure deeds arising from lustful hearts, beginning in verse 22, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. It seems, secondly, in unnatural relations arising from dishonorable passions. Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. He demonstrates it a third time how it is seen in unlawful practices arising from debased minds. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Three demonstrations of the result of man's suppression of the truth. And now statement four is this. Paul demonstrates the extent of man's suppression of the truth. It's seen in verse 32. Though they know God's decree, this is something they know immediately, inherently. They know it. They suppress it, but they know it. Though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. So they know there is a day of judgment coming. They know God's wrath hangs over those who practice such things. What is their response? Twofold, right at the end of verse 32. Number one, they not only do them, but even worse, number two, they give approval to those who practice them. And so there's a summation of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Paul brings a charge. That's statement number one. Paul proves that man suppresses the truth. That's statement number two. Paul demonstrates the result of man's suppression of the truth. Man becomes what he worships. In statement number four, Paul demonstrates the extent, it's a good word, the extent of man's suppression of the truth. He knows God's going to judge these deeds. He knows there's a day of vengeance coming. He doesn't care. He sins anyway. And he gives hearty approval to those who follow him down the same path. There's a summation of this pivotal text, what has been again in my life for the last 25 years, a go-to text. And now I want to give you 10 reasons why. 10 reasons why this text, 22 years of age, second year university, why it was so important to me at that juncture in my life, and why it has proved time and time again to be so important. 10 reasons. I'm going to go quickly through the first five, maybe six because I've mentioned them previously, and then slow down when it comes to the last four or five. Reason number one as to why this is a go-to text. It confirms man's predicament. Here's reason number one. It confirms man's predicament. Look at verse 20 again, what Paul says. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. And so man knows immediately from God himself something of God's nature. Look at verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And so Paul's point throughout this passage is simply this. When it comes to God, we err, we are sorely confused if God is there and then the evidence is here and as if, and, and as if it were as though we were all trying, attempted in the sincerity of our heart to figure out the evidence and if we use our reason and if we use that intellect God has given us, we'll work through the evidence, we'll sift through the proofs and we'll arrive at God. It's often how it's presented. It's not how Paul presents it. No, Paul's presentation of the truth is this. Man already knows. Man isn't trying to figure anything out. He doesn't have to figure anything out. The knowledge is inherent. The knowledge is immediate because God himself reveals himself to everyone. 
And man already knows inherently, he suppresses it. But he knows inherently two truths to be absolutely unequivocally true. Something of God's nature. And he knows with absolute certainty God's decree that a day of judgment is coming. This points to man's predicament, meaning what? Man is without excuse. You remember the question? I think I threw it out there a couple of months ago. Simply this, well, what about that poor individual? What about that poor man, that poor woman who has never heard the truth? You know, some people hear the gospel, the truth a thousand times, 10,000 times. Radio programs, preachers, pastors, family members, other people they live off maybe in some foreign land, some foreign country among people where there's no Bible. They never hear the word Jesus. Well, well, how can God judge? What about that person who's never heard the truth? Uh, how can God judge that person who's never heard the truth? And the point I made several Sundays ago was simply this. The question does not exist because that individual does not exist. They are all without excuse. It's got nothing to do with the Bible, God's special revelation. It has nothing to do with the name of Jesus. It actually has nothing to do in the first instance with the gospel. It has to do with God's general revelation. What God himself has made known to all people in all places at all times is not up for debate. The issue isn't man's groping in the darkness trying to figure out the truth. The issue is this. Man is in darkness because he willingly, consciously, because he dislikes God, suppresses what he knows to be true. Two facts. God's nature and God's decree. So it's a go-to text because it reminds us of man's predicament. Number two, it's a go-to text because it shapes our perspective on reality. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, God's nature, God's decree. They made a choice following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did not reject God for intellectual reasons. They rejected God for moral reasons. They did not like God. And they liked this idea, in the day you eat thereof, you will be like God. And their posterity, their descendants, all of us have followed in their footsteps. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark. And there is the key that unlocks reality. This world is a confusing place. It's beautiful. At the same time, it's miserable. Why is there so much beauty? And why is there so much misery? This passage of Scripture tells us. It makes it perfectly clear. God is the creator of all things. God gives life to all things. Having created the entire universe, God declared that it was very good. God created man, Adam and Eve, in his image. He made them and granted them a tremendous stewardship over the creation. Adam and Eve refused to honor God. And Adam and Eve refused to give thanks to God. And they plunged themselves into darkness. They plunged themselves into absurdity. And they plunged their posterity, the entire human race, into the same predicament whereby we follow in their footsteps and we suppress what we know to be true because we have believe, we've believed the lie which was proclaimed way back in the garden, you will be like God. That explains reality. Why? Because God's wrath is now revealed. Three times he gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them up. And he allowed them to do what? Plunge headlong into sin. God punishes unchecked sin with sin. And he allowed them, permitted them to pursue after the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
And they set up unbelievable idols in their hearts and in their minds, plunging themselves into deeper darkness. And there we have the root cause of misery. There we have the root cause of all pain. And there we have the root cause of suffering. There we have the root cause of all that is ill in this world. There we have the root cause of all that plagues mankind. The question we often hear is this. It was a book title not that long ago. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's not a question. The question doesn't exist because the good people do not exist. Can't answer the question because the question just doesn't exist. The question is this. Why do good things happen to bad people? That there is still beauty in this created order. There is still the manifestation of God's common grace toward mankind, even in the midst of such darkness and willful apostasy and rebellion against God. And in this, we have the key again that unlocks reality and explains the predicament in which man finds himself and explains why there is such beauty yet such misery in this world. Number three, the third reason why this is a go-to text. It shows man's bondage to idolatry. This is obvious. I'll be quick. Let me just remind you of the three relevant texts. Verse 23, he exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. Man becomes what he worships and the creature becomes the object of his affections. We are worshiping beings. We will worship something. If we are not worshiping God, we will come up with a substitute God. It might be something as obscene as, as, as images made out of gold and silver. It might be something far more respectable in terms of things in our lives, our own emotions, our own experiences. But please understand, every individual, oh, and I know this sounds harsh, but it is the truth, it is reality. Every individual outside of the Lord Jesus Christ is living a lie. Do you understand that, my friend? If you're not a Christian, your entire life is a lie because your entire life is based on idolatry. There is something in your life that drives you. There is something in your life that consumes you. There is something that makes you tick. There is something that you are living for. It is not the Lord God Almighty as revealed, revealed himself in Scripture. That means you have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and your entire life and existence is predicated upon falsehood. This text shows us that. It demonstrates. It shows man's bondage to idolatry. Number four, this text quickly establishes the nature of truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. God himself is the revealer of truth. And this is the great predicament. This is the great debate. And undoubtedly, many of us have been down this road with umpteen individuals. The great debate, the great predicament. Man is tenacious. And man, above all else in our day, holds to this concept of autonomous reasoning. 
thinking that his, his thinking, assuming that his thinking or the starting point of all thinking is independent from God. That's not what Paul says. Paul's point is simply this, the starting point for all true thought, the starting point for all true comprehension, the starting point for truth itself is not independence from God. It is dependence upon God. The Lord Jesus did not have this exclusively in mind when he declared it, but undoubtedly he had something of this, an inkling of this, when he declared in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humility is the way into the kingdom. But man holds tenaciously to this presupposition, My thinking is autonomous. No, it is not. The doorway, the pathway, That leads to truth, ultimate reality. The great answers to the great philosophical questions, it all begins with our humble acknowledgement that our thinking is absolutely dependent upon a God who has spoken, revealed himself. It establishes the nature of truth. Number five, this text demonstrates the bankruptcy of evolutionary philosophy. Look at verse 22. There's a statement there. It's somewhat insulting, but it's not mine. It's the Apostle Paul's claiming to be wise. They became fools. Let me repeat the fifth point. It demonstrates the bankruptcy of evolutionary philosophy. I've chosen my words carefully. Do not read into them more than is there. I am not speaking of the distinction between microevolution and macroevolution. I'm not commenting on the legitimacy of these. I'm not commenting on that debate between young earth, old earth. That's not my point. Listen again to my words. It demonstrates the bankruptcy of evolutionary philosophy. What do I mean by that? I mean simply that those who are committed to evolutionary theory, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, enter into the realm of philosophy whereby they try to answer a philosophical question, which is what? Where did it all come from? Or how did it all happen as we trace it back? It maintains evolutionary philosophy. It maintains that millions of years ago, billions of years ago, a one-celled living organism appeared on the earth. It possessed such marvelous powers of development that after many years it happened to evolve into the various forms of plant and animal life in today's world. That is evolutionary philosophy. This philosophy attributes marvelous powers of development to nothing. Therefore, it is the epitome of absurdity. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Number six, it reveals the utter failure of a secular worldview. Might as well stay put in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. What do I mean by secular worldview? We simply mean any worldview, any philosophy, any system of thought, any way of thinking that excludes God from the equation. May not necessarily deny the existence of God, may not even necessarily deny the role of God in getting the whole thing going. But for all intents and purposes, to understand reality and understand this world and understand life, God is relegated to the periphery, left field, on you go. He, is no, he does no longer factors into it. He's no longer the starting point when it comes to knowledge or understanding our place in this world. 
Sproul, R.C. Sproul wrote the following, Secular philosophy is predicated on this notion. There is no exit, no exit from the confines of this present world. We must make our decisions, live our lives, make our plans, all within the closed arena of this time. And so man is the measure of all things. He is the ultimate norm. He is the ultimate being. He is the ultimate authority. And all reality and life center upon man. This text proves the absurdity of that position. It demonstrates the utter failure of a secular worldview that when God is dismissed and God hands man over to the darkness, and that downward spiral begins whereby man is actually suppressing the truth, man ends up reveling in the absurd. You pick any moral issue plaguing this country in our day, and there's your proof. Any moral issue. Any more, the, abo- the abortion issue is a, is a prime example of this, whereby all rational thought, all reasonable discourse, all appeal to Scripture, the appeal to a God, the appeal to the fact that we are made in the image of our Creator, it is all relegated as irrelevant labeled as inconsequential, as man has elevated himself as a god, as man has looked to his power of autonomous reason and faces these great moral decisions, moral choices apart from God. Let me repeat it. We see man reveling in the absurd. It reveals the utter failure of a secular worldview. Number seven, this text counters the cause of Christian liberalism. That's going to need some explanation. It counters the cause of Christian liberalism. Now that word liberal is loaded. Liberal in and of itself, good word, it simply refers to someone who is generous, someone who is giving, someone who is liberal with their resources. But the word is then employed politically. It can be employed in terms of economic, social systems. I'm employing it in terms of Christianity that there is such a movement, there is such a thing known as Christian liberalism, which has reared its ugly head over the centuries in different contexts, in different situations, but it has repeatedly sprung up, Christian liberalism. And the heartbeat of Christian liberalism is simply this. What can we do? Or how can we? Let me state it this way. How can we accommodate Christianity to modern culture? How can we make Christianity more acceptable? How can we make Christianity more palatable to the spirit of the age? Christianity wrestles with that predicament in each and every generation, and it morphs, and it takes different shapes, it takes different sizes, and Christian liberalism is extremely active in our own day. Let me show you how it is predominantly active in our day. Let me show you the debate which will define, in many respects, Christianity in the West moving forward. It is this entire debate and issue surrounding homosexuality. And we see how Christian liberalism, even within evangelicalism, is beginning to champion what they label equal rights or what they label acceptance. Let me give you three questions, three brief paragraphs, very brief, a couple sentences each, that you will have heard, maybe not these exact words, but if you've been paying attention, you will have heard them. 
If you haven't heard them, you're going to hear them. And you're not going to hear them from outside the evangelical camp. You're going to hear them, we're already hearing them, from inside so-called evangelicalism. Here we go. Question number one. Didn't Jesus accept people? Aren't we supposed to accept people the way they are? Who are we to judge the sincerity of those involved in monogamous and permanent homosexual relationships? Many of them are better Christians than heterosexuals. Sounds good, doesn't it? You're not going to win that argument on Facebook if you respond, folks. Don't even try. You will not win that argument with sound bites. Number two, didn't Jesus command us to love everyone? We should accept everyone regardless of their sexual orientation. Prohibiting covenant homosexuality places unnecessary barriers in the way of unbelievers. Why would we do that? Number three, didn't Jesus welcome sinners? We aren't to focus. As Christians, we aren't to focus on unreasonable ethical standards. Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. All of the negative comments concerning homosexuality are found in the outdated moral teaching of the Old Testament or the culturally defined and overly complicated teaching of the Apostle Paul. And so the heartbeat of Christian liberalism in every generation, and as we see it now unfolding in terms of this debate in our own day, the heartbeat of Christian liberalism is simply this. It is to pit the teaching of Jesus over against the rest of Scripture. Actually, let me check that. I need to qualify that. It is to pit certain ethical aspects of Jesus' teaching over against the rest of Scripture. They are not drawn to these certain ethical principles as taught by Jesus because they're so committed to the teaching of Jesus. They are drawn to these certain, well-selected, finely tuned, and at times completely misinterpreted, wrenched out of their context, ethical principles of Jesus. Why? Because they match the spirit of the age. Do not be duped. The cry of Christian liberalism in every generation, and again as it's unfolding right now before our very eyes, the cry of Christian liberalism, and please my brothers and sisters, get this and grasp this, because it's going to come to our front door. The heartbeat of Christian liberalism is this. Did God really say? Did God really say? And Christian liberals, here's what they do. Here's why they're gaining ground even within evangelicals. And here's why many evangelicals have a hard time responding. It's for, for the following reason. That as they ask these very specific questions, well-worded, well-targeted Christ, uh, questions, their point is simply this. Look, those who get back to the teaching of Jesus, as we are defining it, as we understand it, they are the true Christians. That's what we're hearing. That's what we're going to continue to hear. This text, Paul, Romans 1, 18 through 32, he counters the cause of Christian liberalism. He posits all truth in God. And he equates all truth with God's revelation, beginning with general revelation, what we call super, his revelation in creation, extending to God's revelation in his word. We cannot pit the teaching or contrast the teaching of Jesus with the rest of Scripture. To deny the rest of Scripture is actually to deny and undermine the very teaching of Jesus. 
Because Jesus himself upheld all of Scripture. Jesus himself accepted the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus himself mandated the advent of the New Testament canon when he commissioned his apostles with the same authority as he possessed. He had all Scripture is the teaching of Jesus. I have a real issue with red-letter Bibles. If you have one, relax. I don't know who you are, and I'm not going to seek you out. I have a real problem with red-letter Bibles. Why? Because it leads to that phenomenon today known as red-letter Christians. It is. I've used the word a lot. I'm going to use it again because I can't think of a better word to use. It is an absurdity. All the Bible is red. All the Bible is the words of Jesus. He is the eternal logos. He is the revealer of God. Anytime God has revealed himself, he has done so through the second person of the Trinity, his beloved son, the eternal Logos, the word of God. It is the word of God made manifest who authenticated and authorized the word written. And so we dare not be deceived. We dare not be duped by this great debate, discussion, controversy raging in our day where people will try to convince us that to get back to these select ethical principles of Jesus encapsulate the essence of Christianity. No, my friends, it is the heartbeat of Christian liberalism. And at the root of it, let me repeat it, is that cry, that question posed way back in the garden, did God really say? Number eight, it provides, this text provides a paradigm for evangelism. You want to be an evangelist? Master this text. You want to be a missionary? Master this text. You want to be a great apologist like Ravi Zacharias or something like that? Master this text. It is the go-to text. And in particular, there's so many things, but in particular, again, let me draw your attention to what Paul emphasizes in verse 20. The knowledge that is the inherent, immediate knowledge of God's nature. Everyone possesses it. And again in verse 32, the inherent immediate knowledge of God's decree. This is non-debatable. This isn't something up for a discussion. This is the starting point for all true knowledge as far as Paul is concerned, that we understand that inherently, immediately, all people in all places at all times know these two things. God's nature and God's decree. It's not the issue. The issue is what? All people in all places at all times suppress it. Why? Not because they've got intellectual issues, but because of moral issues. They do not like the truth. They do not want to honor God. They do not want to thank God. And they suppress what they know to be true inherently and immediately. That is pivotal again for evangelism, for missions, for apologetics. Let me demonstrate it to you, lest you be in doubt. Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22, we have a fascinating narrative. It goes right through the end of the chapter. That's verse 33, verse 34. Paul's the city of Athens, the center of all philosophical thinking. And he appears before these philosophers of various stripes, and uh, they actually give him an audience in the Areopagus. I think that's how you say it. And he begins to, to preach. He begins to declare the truth. And he focuses in on two truths. Do you know what the first is? God's nature. Who you think you worship in ignorance? Let me declare who he really is to you. He is the creator of all things. He is not a God who lives in temples or things made by hands. He gives life to all things. As a matter of fact, in him we live, we move, we have our being. 
He declares, he proclaims God's nature. The second thing he hones in on is what? God's decree. That this great God, the Lord of all creation, the Lord of the heavens and the earth, this great God has appointed a day on which he will judge all people. Those are the two points he makes. He appeals to God's nature. He appeals to God's decree. Why? Because he's not telling them something they don't already know. What's he doing? He is trying to stir what they already know to be true, praying that through unction and through the work of the Spirit of God, the veil might be removed and the heart might be turned toward God to embrace these glorious truths and the salvation that is then offered through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Paul declares in that text, God raised from the dead. That is the starting point for all evangelism. That's the starting point for missions. We are not telling people something in the first instance. We are not declaring something they don't already know to be true. We are declaring something they know is true. God's nature, God's decree, but they suppress by their unrighteousness. That's why in that text, you know what Paul's, I mean, you know what the censure is in that text? He says, repent, repent. We do not invite people to salvation. We do not invite people to God as if we were inviting them to a birthday party. We command them to repent. They have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. God, his nature, he is the creator of all things. We are accountable to him. God, he he has a decree. He has appointed a day of judgment. God, through his son, has made the means of salvation more than ample, more than satisfactory to cleanse us from our sins. And our message, our mandate is what? It is a commandment. It is to repent. Number nine, it provides this text to the riches. It points, rather, to the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. Look at verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And so we have man described in these verses his willful rebellion against his creator. We have God's wrath revealed as he gives him up He gives man up to worship, to become that which he worships, the creature, rather than the creator. We have man suppressing this truth concerning God's decree that those who practice such things, they deserve to die. Not only do men do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Oh, how this text speaks of and points to the forbearance, the kindness, and the patience of God. I didn't make those three words up. Skip down into chapter 2, verse 4. We'll get there next Lord's Day. Or do you presume, says Paul, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, you read that text, and when you realize when you reflect upon the fact that, you know, God doesn't actually need us. You know, we can't see the sun today. It's an oddity here in Texas. But you think on a sunny day, if we were all suddenly to become blind on a sunny day, all of a sudden struck blind, what effect would our blindness have upon the sun? Absolutely nothing. It's business as usual. So too when it comes to humanity. Humanity struck blind. 
humanity reveling, groping around in darkness and its idolatry, God does not change. We have no effect upon God. Can a man be profitable unto God? God is a perfect being, incapable of increase or decrease. Nothing can be added to him or subtracted from him. He doesn't require anything outside of himself. Nor does he benefit from anything outside of himself. Our effect upon God is that of a snowball hurled at the blazing sun. God does not need us to help him. He does not need us to serve him. He does not need us to worship him. He does not need us to defend him. He does not need us to love him. When you ponder that reality in the light of this text, oh my friend, Stand in wonder at his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, leading us, guiding us to repentance. And number 10, finally, with this one I conclude, this text, a go-to text. Why? Because it proves that we have, as Christians, no reason to be ashamed. No reason to be ashamed. Jump back with me into verse 16 which really sets this section right off in its entirety. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When I get my mind around what Paul goes on to say in verses 18 through 32, when I get my mind around man's real, true predicament, man's rebellion against God, man's blatant idolatry, man's persistence in sinning and ignoring and suppressing God's nature and God's decree, and I consider the gospel And I consider that this glorious gospel as the expression and revelation of his grace and mercy now through the gospel declares to each one of us that there is salvation. There is salvation from his wrath. There is freedom from his judgment. There is freedom from his justice. There is freedom from his fury. There is freedom from that wrath which is fixed upon us, and that freedom, that liberty, that salvation, that redemption is found in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God's righteousness, that thing which separated God from me, He's righteous, I'm unrighteous. But now that His righteousness is revealed through the gospel, meaning what? That as I live by faith, as I come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, As I repent of my sin in Christ, I become the very righteousness of God. Meaning his righteousness is reckoned to me. Meaning Christ's perfect obedience is imputed to me, whereby I, a filthy sinner and a rebel at the very core of my being, now stand accepted in God's sight in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, my friend. What reason do I have to be ashamed of the gospel? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I had a couple more comments to make, but I think best 
An apt time to conclude just with this well-known stanza from a well-known hymn. Listen to these words, and I pray the Spirit of God impresses their significance upon us. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Again, hear the words of the Apostle Paul as we conclude. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he quotes from Habakkuk, The righteous shall live by faith. Our Father, we praise you for this glorious provision in the gospel. When we consider our infinite demerit and your infinite merit, we do indeed stand in wonder. And we praise your mighty name, and we thank you for all that you have made us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As always, we acknowledge our need for illumination. We acknowledge our dependence upon you. And so pray that as we have expounded and considered your word this day, that now by your Spirit you would shine your light upon us and give light where there is darkness, give understanding where there is confusion, grant humility where there is pride, Grant repentance where there is stubbornness. And above all, give us, impart to us, a saving, sustaining, transforming vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed all our righteousness. We ask this now in his precious name. Amen.